trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I invite you to come revel in wrong think each day at this time, assuming you're listening to the live broadcast. Ah, then again, if you're listening to the podcast, I guess we could do each day at this time. It's just at your convenience. And that is the beauty of subscribing to the podcast, which you can do by going to the show notes at the com. looking for the show notes today for February 8th of 2021. You know, every time I turn around and see the, the latest development, I just, uh, I, I have this, uh, it's the most curious mixture of um, apprehension as well as excitement. I mean, I, I can liken it to a roller coaster, but that doesn't really come close to that sensation of holy cow. Wherever we're headed, we seem to be headed there quickly. We seem to be picking up speed and, and the thrill, if you will, or at least the, the thing that has a lot of us a little bit wide-eyed right at the moment is the fact that we have so little control over a lot of the big picture stuff. I know it feels overwhelming, and, and my, my goal each day as I sit here behind this microphone is not to add to your burden. I don't want to pile on with the fear and the uncertainty or anger that the people are feeling. There's plenty of it out there. What I do hope to provide are some thought-provoking commentaries, ideas, ways of looking at the world that are just a couple of steps to the side of where a lot of people are seeing them. It doesn't mean that everybody else is wrong and only I can see this right. It's just a little bit different perspective. What I would hope is a little broader perspective than you had before. And of course, you are under no obligation whatsoever to believe anything that I share with you. Having said that, I really have some great, great content to share with you. Uh, Let me give you a couple of examples here. We're going to start out today talking about uh, how changes around us take place so gradually that uh, for the most part, it's almost imperceptible. I mean, anytime you've looked at your kids and went, oh my gosh, when did they grow? I have grandkids. You know, when you, when you start to see some of those little, uh, you know, days turn into weeks, turn into months, turn into years happen, it's, it always seems gradual. I don't have that sensation right now. The sensation I have now is probably what people felt as a stampeding herd of, of buffalo, you know, running at them. And Jeff Minnick has a terrific article about finding himself looking over his shoulder while at the same time trying to look ahead to what's coming. That's where I'd like to begin today. Jeff Minnick says, in 1959, I was eight years old. Had someone told me I would one day own and operate a bed and breakfast, homeschool my kids, and possess a laptop that allowed me to write instant letters to faraway friends or read newspapers from England, such predictions would have boggled my mind. Homeschool, laptop, and so on were words without meaning for me. He says the deliverer of that news might as well have spoken a foreign language. 1960. He says, had someone told me that games like Red Rover and Dodgeball would one day be banned in schools, that wrestling on the playground was a sign of toxic masculinity, or that carrying a pocket knife to school could get you arrested, I would have been astonished. 1961. 
In Mrs. Jessup's fifth grade class, we prayed, said the Pledge of Allegiance, learned patriotic songs, including North Carolina's state anthem, recited the poetry of Longfellow and Frost, and studied heroes of history. Had someone told me that within a few decades, most of these practices would be banished or otherwise disappear from the classroom, I would have been shocked. 1963, had someone told me that within six years, America would put astronauts on the moon, my heart would have swelled with pride for my country. 1973, I graduated with honors in history from a small Quaker college in North Carolina. Most of the professors were liberals, but they generally taught their classes without prejudice. Had someone told me that within 30 years, radicals would erode free speech on campus, both in the classrooms and in the public forum, I would have laughed in disbelief. 1991, the Gulf War begins. Had someone told me that our nation would be embroiled in Middle Eastern wars for the next 30 years with no end in sight, I might have asked, what's the point? 2001, 9-11. Had someone told me, ah, he says, I have no words for this one. 2015, had someone told me that Donald Trump would descend on an escalator, announce his candidacy for president of the United States, and against all odds, win election to that office. I would have clapped my hands, not for him, but because of the defeat of an opponent I regarded as unworthy of that or any other office. 2020, had someone told me that the winning presidential candidate would avoid press conferences and live as a recluse for months while his opponent attracted enormous crowds, I would have reacted, and I still react with incredulity. 2021, had someone told me that our, that our newly elected president and those writing his executive orders would aim to radically change our country, I would have shrugged and said, what did you expect? 2024, which way America, he asks. Will ordinary Americans become serfs, governed by an elite gang of politicians, bureaucrats, tech companies, and big business? Or will we win the fight against these attempts to crush our God-given rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Will America become the new Venezuela? Or will we once again stand as a city on a hill? Only time will tell. Jeff Minnick says, I've come a long way from a boyhood in Boonville, North Carolina, where some farmers still cropped tobacco by hand and moved it to curing barns by mule-drawn sleds, where my mom bought our milk directly from a dairy, where patients sometimes paid my dad for his medical services with vegetables from their gardens, and where nearly everyone in town knew everyone else's business. Think Mayberry and the Andy Griffith Show, and you get the idea. He says there was beauty in that community, yes, but ugliness too as blacks were segregated from whites, and the poverty of both races was much more grueling than that of today. He says there was one enormous difference between then and now, and that difference was patriotism. Many of the adult men I knew had fought in World War II. I heard some political discussions among the grown-ups, but never any disparagement of America. And our teachers taught us to love our country. Yet now we live in a time when patriotism is relegated to the attic, covered in dust and forgotten. From the late 1960s on, affection for, new, for American ideals has declined, not only in our schools and universities, but also in our culture. Few nations in world history have sought to eradicate their past as we do now, or have shown such disregard for their country's accomplishments and generosity to the rest of the world. Had someone told me in my youth that many Americans would come to despise their native land, that we would elect government officials more interested in lining their own pockets 
interested in supporting American ideals and that a large number of us would advocate and support ideas such as speech control, socialism, and a clampdown on constitutional rights. He says, I would have wept. It's not too late to reverse course and to remember who and what we are. But he says the clock is ticking. Now, here's what's interesting. I'm sure you've watched the the narrative develop here over the last few weeks, ever since the uh, what some are calling insurrection at the Utah at the uh, U.S. Capitol. It was a clash. Okay, to to assign it insurrection really kind of sucks all meaning out of the word insurrection. But we have been told in the wake of this that there, there are enemies among us and the security state must focus inward. Domestic terrorism and extremism, white supremacy, this is all the, the boogeyman that, uh, that America must be protected from at this time. And now there's a new at- approach here. A friend just sent me this article earlier today. And this is... Uh, an article, this was actually published in, uh, in the Deseret News, which I, I found interesting considering that's a, that's a paper owned by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Maya Jaradat, the author, asks how Americans, or rather explains how Americans can address Christian nationalism in their congregations and communities. Now, I only have a minute left in this segment, but, but I, I feel like I need to say something here. If you read the papers of the founding period, if you read what the individuals were thinking when they stood up to Great Britain and declared their independence and then fought for it and won it over many bloody years. There was divine purpose in what they were doing, and they they felt and and even those who came before them felt. That there was a direct relationship with the hand of God and this land. And I know it's really, you know, fashionable today, first of all, not to believe in God. But but what this article is, is claiming is that, well, you know, the problem with these extremists is that they believe that God has blessed this land and, and they act as if, boy, that is the most radical, outrageous statement of all. And I just want to state for the record, it's not. It really isn't. And, and to, to understand this, you need to read what those of the founding generation thought in terms of what is their relationship with God. They sure didn't create a state church, but they definitely had a society that reverenced the laws of nature and nature's God and recognized that our rights come from our creator and not from government. And now that's being attacked. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Our show is brought to you by great sponsors, but like, let's try this again, Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. Look, if you're a small business owner, or if you you have need for commercial insurance, you don't even have to be a small business owner, you know that there's a lot to it. And, and maybe that's uh, you know, just one of the many expert hats that you choose to wear. But I'm here to tell you that there is a team of experts and professionals at Landmark Risk Management and Insurance who are there to make sure that uh, you're covered, make sure that you, you don't have stuff that you don't need, and make sure that you do have what you do need. And it's as simple as contacting them. The contact information is right there at the bottom of my show notes at com. Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. Please 
let them know that you contacted them because their message reached your ears via this program. So let me ask you something here. What do TV news, politicians, and social media have in common? I'm just going to sit here for a minute because I'm imagining if you're like me, there's a little, I have kind of a little knee jerk reaction there. All three. <laughs> Those are three, three things that I am not particularly fond of on any given day because I don't feel like they're uh, particularly honest. Or I feel like they don't really feel comfortable with me speaking freely. But actually, there's another angle here. And I want to uh, I want to recognize Paul Rosenberg for pointing out how together they are part of this great fear machine. That has been used and is being used to convince us that only people in power know enough to run our lives. Now, this arrangement benefits uh, each of those players, TV news, politicians, social media, but it cannot go on indefinitely. And I'll have a link to Paul's essay explaining why this is. His article is titled The Great Fear Machine of 2020. He says the events of 2020 were unique in human history, and so I think it's important to give them some perspective. He says what we experienced was the first televised plague and what it spawned was a unique fear machine. Now, fear delivery systems go back to the first tyrants, of course, but this one featured a scale and an intimacy that went beyond all others, even those of the vile USSR. The plague itself, COVID-19, was minor as such things go. The flu of 1919 was far worse not to mention historical plagues that made this one look like a case of the sniffles. Nonetheless, it was enough to spawn something unique. So he says, briefly, let's look at the pieces that came together. TV news. Television news was dying. Their ratings had cratered. There was no real hope to be seen. Politicians and the elderly still took TV news seriously. The informed and the young did not. To these companies, COVID was salvation. It locked people in their houses for months at a time with nothing to do but watch. Secondly, politicians. Paul Rosenberg says nothing in our time empowered middling political officials like COVID-19. Governors and regional officials became gods. They shut down whole states and provinces in a stroke and sent their armed enforcers to make it so, while television cameras hung on their every word. He said people get into politics for the rush of power, and 2020 gave it to them in spades. The new potentates decided what could or could not be sold, forbade religious ceremonies, and so on. And then you have social media. Facebook, Google, YouTube, Twitter, and the rest have become the core of soft power, in other words, mass manipulation. As with television, COVID forced people into their arms, and they were pleased to addict them. More than that, the operators of these systems stepped from the, lands of, from the land of geeks to the halls of power, where they drank the evil brew and liked it. To this, he says, we could add maniacal health officials and others. It was an orgy for power addicts. And again, we saw that fear makes humans manipulable. Now, all of this was bad, but what's coming out of it is worse. These groups became organs of the big hierarchy, joining the inner sanctums of power as essential players. But here's the important part. Once joined to power, you see the rest of humanity as masses rather than individuals. Now, Paul Rosenberg says you can find psychological studies that demonstrate this with hard data, but it's easy enough to see for yourself. Phrases like managing perceptions imply precisely this. 
Furthermore, the actions of the newly powerful demonstrated this. Seeing the rest of the world as nameless serfs, they behaved like hubristic monarchs. Tell the masses not to wear masks so there are enough for all the doctors to get them. After a week or two, tell the serfs to wear the mask for their safety so they have something to hang on to. As mask wearing turns into a good-bad divide, play to the narrative, keep the masses outraged and engaged. Scare people away from fast cures so the opposition can't seize credit. Hold out for a vaccine. Never admit mistakes that your group makes, like tens of thousands of predictable nursing home deaths. If the issue persists, double down and keep repeating conspiracy theory. The serfs are terrified of public ridicule. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, OK, aside from a quibble or two, I can't see many honest disputes with these points. We all saw them. Now we're in 2021, the year of winding it down. And he says, as I write this, a general pulling back of the fear machine has begun. New incentives have asserted themselves and a large segment of the power complex now sees this as necessary. And the primary reason for this change is that lockdowns crashed the tax receipts of the middling officials who were facing broken budgets. Now, that could be solved with money printing, of course, but the money masters are not trying to make the dollar a complete joke. That might collapse the entire Western system. There are complications, of course, such as tax serfs leaving the regime's most loyal states and an abused working class that may eventually wake up. Still, the great fear machine of 2020 must be pulled back. Power, however, cannot be seen to admit an error or to take anything less than a powerful stride forward. And so declining case numbers and vaccines will provide cover for winding down the hysteria. Peace with honor and all that. Now, he poses the question, what comes out of this? And says, obviously, it's hard to predict what comes out of a situation like this one. But there are certain aspects that are reasonably clear. Political regimes will hurry to pull as much out of this moment as possible. State and provincial bosses will slide back toward their former roles. Their lives will be overrun with servicing labor unions, preventing citizen revolts and begging for newly printed money. Social media, having made itself power's best and most reliable friend, will ride high. They're now the indispensable indispensable managers of the herds. And TV news will shrink back toward what it was running from one crisis to another, large or small, real or manufactured. And to prevent that, they'll have to operate as court sycophants. The wild card in all of this, he says, is the productive class. Intellectually, these people are quite capable of understanding that they're living in a totalitarian regime. They're regimented, herded, monitored, restricted, and stripped of income far beyond the dreams of any pharaoh. Emotionally, their ability to accept it is uncertain. They have a great deal of their identity tied to national myths, possibly too much to overcome. Paul Rosenberg finishes by saying the facts say that the regimes of the West have become totalitarian. By the way, I don't know anybody who is paying attention who would argue with that assertion. Standing against this statement, he says, is neither data nor reason nor observation. Standing against it is emotion and particularly fear. Good luck. Good luck to us all, rather. I'll have a link to this in the show notes. I always recommend Paul's essays just because I think he he summarizes things brilliantly. This guy sees things with a clarity that, that a lot of other writers don't. But there's also a gentleness to his writing where this is not about now go out there and prove everybody else, you know, prove to them how wrong they are. 
He's not sicking you on others with facts, you know, that you can use to beat them to death. He's giving you the big picture, but also reminding you that uh, you and I, we still have a lot of things in which we can make the decisions. We can choose our conduct. And here's an important one. We can choose whether or not to live in fear. I told you last week, you know, I came back from a visit to, to go see family in a neighboring state. And for just a little while, as I had lunch in a little country diner, the fear was gone. And I mean, not just for me, but from everybody. And it was the best I had felt in months. I'd like to see it come back. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Okay, welcome back to the show. Are you ready for some good news? I feel like I haven't had a lot of good news to share today, but this is actually really exciting. Utah, my home state, is on its way to enacting something known as a regulatory sandbox. And to explain what this is, there's actually a great article in the Deseret News talking about uh, about what this this sandbox is. If, if I said the term permissionless innovation, some of you would probably go, oh, OK, maybe you've heard about that. If you haven't, that's the reason why I get excited about things like this. I know there are people, and I'm, I'm not one of them, but there are people who really thrive on a sense of, well, I just want to know that everything is regulated really tightly and, you know, everything's under control. You know, nobody's out there, you know, making things crazy. But the, the problem is you get diminishing returns at some point when regulation is so heavy that any person, person who even has, you know, a, a good, truly innovative, groundbreaking idea and they come forward and they're like, yeah, I want to implement this. But then they have to jump through this regulatory hoop and get permission from them. And have you done the environmental environmental impact statement and, and study and so forth? It's it, it's very cumbersome. And if I could just be so blunt, um, in my opinion, there's a good portion of the federal bureaucracy that exists for the purpose of being there to determine whether or not we should grant permission in return for money to a person or a company or, you know, a cause. And it's, it's just very stifling. And so here's how the article in the Deseret News describes the situation at hand in Utah. It questions that the headline says, will the next Uber or Airbnb want to launch in Utah thanks to this new business sandbox? The article says, are Utah lawmakers pulling just the right levers to ensure the state is the preferred birthplace for the next big thing from the innovation world? And it's because a proposal making its way through the current legislative session is earning national attention thanks to the core idea that could help lure the best innovators from around the country and around the world to the Beehive State to launch their latest products and services. The so-called regulatory sandbox bill would create a pathway for innovators to get a temporary reprieve from standing state rules that could either impede or prevent a new idea from getting a real-world tryout. Now, baked into the proposal are mechanisms to ensure public safety and well-being are protected. So it says don't expect experimental gyrocopters to suddenly fill the skies. But 
The idea is poised to elevate Utah's already already widely recognized innovation-friendly environment. Now, Representative Corey Malloy of Lehigh, by the way, Corey is my representative, and and I just I want to give uh, props to him. He is an extremely responsive and I think principled legislator. And I don't think you hear that enough. I'm I'm generally pretty anti-politician. Corey is is the kind of person I want to give my support to because I believe he is very serious about representing the people who elected him. And he is the sponsor of HB 217. He says the idea is to allow agencies to draw a circle around outdated rules or ones that simply couldn't have anticipated a new business idea to open new business pathways. And he believes it's a concept that could generate its own wave of fresh economic development activity for the state. He told members of the Silicon Slopes Common Policy Forum last week, the bill is geared to allow companies from small businesses to entrepreneurs to established businesses from just about any industry to take a new innovation into the sandbox and be free of state regulations that could hinder their ability to launch a new product or service. He says the main goal is really to foster innovations, a sort of modern-day tool for our business community and economic development. Now, unnecessary and burdensome regulations always raise red flags for Connor Boyack, president of Utah-based libertarian think tank Libertas Institute. And by the way, this bill is something that Libertas Institute has been very uh, instrumental in bringing to the forefront as well. This is another reason why I'm backing it, because I really believe it is well thought out public policy in that it shrinks the size of government in the right ways and for the right reasons. Boyack pointed out that Utah has plenty of past examples of new business models running into regulatory buzzsaws with negative and in some cases very costly outcomes. He noted the rocky Utah launch effort for ride-hailing innovators Uber and Lyft, whose drivers accumulated thousands of dollars in tickets before state lawmakers could make regulatory adjustments. Tesla Motors for not, not being able to sell cars at their own Utah facilities. Food truck operators running afoul of rules that didn't anticipate a surge in mobile vending and many more. Boyack said the most unfortunate thing about these problems we've had in Utah is the companies and their employees or contractors are first punished and then sometime later the laws are updated. He says the regulatory sandbox creates a path for businesses to skip the unnecessary punishment phase. They can be shielded from archaic rules and punitive measures that go with them and allowed a limited period, still overseen by the appropriate regulatory body, to show they can operate under fewer laws and regulations. Now, Forbes public policy analyst Adam Millsap penned a recent report in which he breaks down why he sees Utah as a potential and powerful economic booster, and lauds an approach that opens the sandbox opportunity to all businesses, regardless of what they do. Millsap wrote, making sure every industry has access to a sandbox for experimentation and working out kinks is a smart move. He says it's hard to predict where the next big innovation is going to come from. Industry-specific sandboxes that limit access may stifle the next big innovation simply because the firm with the great idea wasn't in the right industry. Now, Utah's already made forays into a few custom-tailored sandbox efforts, previously targeting the financial technology and legal arenas, and gaining plaudits for positive outcomes. But the article says Utah's all-inclusive approach to the sandbox concept could, Millsap believes, 
also proved to be an effective hedge against what could be the beginning of a new era of federal regulatory expansion. Millsap wrote, President Joe Biden's recent executive orders strongly hint that he intends to increase regulation at the federal level, which will reduce growth nationwide. Fortunately, states can offset some of the increase in federal regulation by reforming their own regulatory environments. And Utah's plan to expand its regulatory sandboxes is one example. Now, Ben Hart is deputy director of the Utah Governor's Office of Economic Development and said his agency is in strong support of the idea and is likely the new home for the effort. That'll include hiring a full-time sandbox coordinator that will help businesses connect with appropriate regulatory bodies to establish sandbox stipulations. Under current bill language, those carve-outs would extend for a year and perhaps be eligible for a one-year extension. Hart said that the sandbox mechanism, if adopted, would amplify a signal that is already emitting outside Utah borders that when it comes to trying out new business concepts, this is the place to launch. He said it's putting out a new shingle to the country and international community that Utah is going to have a great addition to an already very, very entrepreneur-friendly business environment. And Hart also likes a subcomponent of Malloy's bill that calls for the creation of a new website that would allow any business owner or entrepreneur who's running into or anticipating issues with standing regulations to call for an updated review. Hart said his office tried a beta test of a similar effort a few years ago and had contributors in just a single year highlight over 300 code items that appeared irrelevant, misfocused, or simply unnecessary under a continually evolving business environment. Now, Connor Boyack says he sees the sandbox process as a way for government to maintain appropriate regulatory authority and oversight, while also allowing a lot more flexibility to open up opportunities to new business to prosper. And he wonders how many great ideas may have already come and gone due to regulatory frameworks that never allowed the first step of a new idea to take place. Boyack said, our society, I think it's reasonable to say, has likely been deprived of countless innovations thanks to government regulatory environments. Right now, he says, the government is a big fat weight on top of entrepreneurs. This allows government to be more flexible and more supportive and create new venues for business ideas to thrive. Pretty exciting stuff. There's more to this article. I will let you check it out for yourself. There is a link to it in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. You know, I'm, I, some may say this sounds like a really radical thing to say, but... I really believe that this is the right move in that it invites government to get out of the way until it's actually needed. And I love that uh, these businesses and these innovators are given the chance to show, look, we can make this work without, you know, your direct uh, regulatory, you know, micromanagement. I don't know. It makes a lot of sense to me. It makes me happy. We got to take a break. We'll do that here in just a few moments. I do want to ask you to please stop by the show notes at the com, and I want you to click on the link down there under my sponsors for Rio del Sion Home Lots. This is right by Zion National Park. It is a wonderful opportunity if you are in the market to build a home. These are beautiful home lots in one of the most incredible and breathtaking areas on God's earth. And if you'd like more information, again, click on the link under my sponsors in today's show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. We'll be back right after this.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And welcome back to the show. By the way, if you could do me this small favor, if you're finding any value in the content that I share with you, whether it's uh, you know through the spoken word, whether it's through the notes that you can find in, uh, in the show notes published with each episode, please tell a friend. Just let, let people know. And, and it's not that uh, you'll find all the answers here. I am not a wise man. I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not even influential enough to be considered a threat by the powers that be. I don't know what it is. Maybe, maybe I haven't tried hard enough. Uh, knock on wood, though. Facebook, Facebook, rather, has never blocked me. Twitter never blocked me. Again, I'm just, I'm just not important enough. But what I do here each day is try to provide information that, that uh, provides some insights into what's happening, question some of the prevailing narrative that we're being told you have to believe or else. And then on top of that, hopefully solidifying the principles and practices that make it possible for you and me to live with the maximum amount of freedom possible, which is not easy. I don't know if you've caught on to this, but a lot of people are starting to recognize there's some people really don't want me to, to, to live with that kind of freedom. I, I have to live by their license and with their permission and everything should come, you know, with me standing before them hat in hand and asking, please, may I? Oh, please. <laughs> There's a great article from Lawrence W. Reed. Yes, Larry Reed from the Foundation for Economic Education. To own or be owned. And this is a powerful article in that he's not just talking about private property here. This could apply to your life, your body, your autonomy as well. The subtitle here is the more government owns and thereby controls, the less free and productive the people are. Now, Larry Reed points out in a maximum security prison near Lima, Peru, an 86-year-old fanatic against private property spends his twilight days locked away in public property. His name is Abimel Guzman, founder of the Peruvian communist group Sendero Luminoso, Shining Path. Before his capture in 1992, Guzman and his comrades were responsible for the deaths of tens of thousands of Peruvians. Now, you can read more about his trail of horrors and the link provided there in the story. He is all these things. Professor, terrorist, evil, murderer, idiot. Larry says, communists like Guzman are famously in favor of abolishing private property because they don't believe individuals should own things. Karl Marx himself declared that communism could be summarized in a single phrase, the abolition of private property. But Larry Reed says intelligent people know that this is lunacy. The fact is that it's neither possible nor desirable to construct a society in which people or material things they create are not owned. Either you will own yourself or somebody else will own you. As far as material things are concerned, somebody must own them too. Those somebodies will either be those who created them, received them as a gift, or traded freely for them, or they will be those who take them by force. There is no middle ground, no third way in which ownership is somehow avoided. Even the prison where Guzman languishes is owned. It's the property of the Peruvian state. Now, some may naively claim, well, that means this prison is the property of the people. But that's a collectivist abstraction that means little. Who are the people who actually get to use the prison? A handful of state officials and prisoners like Guzman, 
who would rather be somewhere that's private or offering privacy somewhere else. Ownership of physical things, says Larry Reed, is both a virtue and a necessity. What is yours you tend to take care of? If it belongs to someone else, you have very little incentive to care for it. If it belongs to everyone, then you have every incentive to use it and abuse it and little reason to conserve it. Thousands of years of history reinforces this essential principle. The more the government owns and thereby controls, the less free and productive the people are. So ownership is nothing less than the right to shape, use, and dispose. Even if you have legal title to something, you wouldn't really think you owned it if the government told you what you could do with it, how and when. In that instance, the government would be the de facto owner. Now, for thoroughly trashing the resources of any society, no more surefire prescription exists than to take them from those to whom they belong, in other words, the rightful owners, and give them to those who are convinced in the fantasy land of their own minds that they have a better idea of what to do with them. Socialist regimes, which take from some and give to others at the point of a gun, have their self-serving schemes for how to squander what they steal but they display an infantile ignorance of how to create wealth in the first place. In fact, neither socialists nor socialism has any coherent, thoughtful theory of wealth creation. They seem to think that wealth, specifically goods and services, materializes out of nowhere and then waits for them to seize and distribute it. That's infantile. That's the way three-year-olds think until they grow up and they learn that for wealth to come into being, somebody has to work, create, Take risks, invent, invest, innovate, employ, and build. You can't expropriate it until somebody far smarter than you constructs it first. Now, Larry Reed says much has been made in the past about alleged differences between fascism and communism. On the question of ownership, the difference is a cosmetic one that ultimately matters little to the ordinary citizen. Under either system, real ownership is in the hands of the state regardless of what any scrap of legal title paper says. And by the way, he says fascism and communism are not opposites. Each is a variety of socialism. They're both ideologies of the left. Both glorify the state for, its own, for their own twisted purposes, and both hate private property because they want to be in charge of it instead of the individuals who create it. So here's the bottom line. It's either you or somebody else. Who should own your retirement savings, you or the government? Who should decide where your child goes to school, you the parent or a handful of other parents different from you only because they work for the government? Who should own your house or business, you who created or purchased it or some windbag politician who claims the state has some fraudulent fabricated right to it in the name of the people? Those are questions, by the way, that... uh, will definitely get under the skin of certain politicians and and some of their supporters. The point here that uh, Larry Reed is making, Abimel Guzman wasted his own life, and worse, he took the lives of many others because he convinced himself that property should belong to the state. And Larry Reed, who is not a bitter or angry guy, does not have kind words for, for Mr. Guzman. How stupid. What a moron, he says. Now he lives his last days in a tiny corner of state-owned property. It may be a far more instructive experience for him than he ever provided the students he once indoctrinated indoctrinated at the university in Ayachuco. Own or be owned, 
says Larry Reed. It's one or the other. Take your pick. Don't be an idiot like Guzman. Now, there's something very powerful in that concept of taking ownership for yourself, for your own well-being, for your self-reliance, for your autonomy. A person who does this is a person who has the prospect of improving their situation, charting their own course. And I'm going to acknowledge, I understand very well, there are people who simply do not want to do this. Life can be scary. It can be unpredictable. When things like, you know, pandemics come along, it really puts, it throws people for a loop. They don't know what to do. But it's always, always a bad idea to hand over the autonomy for your life and that decision-making power to someone or to allow it to be taken by someone acting from some central planning authority. They may mean well. They may actually be trying to do their level best. I'm just trying to do the best I can for everybody under the circumstances. But it doesn't matter. As F.A. Hayek explains in The Road to Serfdom, they don't have the necessary information to make the right decision for all the different people out there. We have to make those decisions ourselves. We have to be the ones who take ownership for our lives. And, and that means you, you've got to be willing to stand up and assert your freedoms where necessary. You've got to be willing to step back and withdraw your consent where necessary. You've got to make yourself an unplayable piece on the big chessboard where necessary. But that's because you are asserting the proper ownership of your life. You're not some horse for somebody else to throw a saddle on and then sit there and hit with their riding crop as they try to drive you in a direction of their choosing. And I don't think I'm being too unkind when I point out, I think that's how most politicians tend to see themselves. I'm in charge here. I tell you what to do. You're supposed to adore me and thank me. You know, for everything that I've done for you. Do, do you not appreciate the gifts that I and the political class have given you? Well, I hope you'll consider strongly that it is no one's prerogative to own you. Yes, there are risks and there are dangers that come with freedom. They're worth it. Because with those risks and dangers comes the possibility of succeeding beyond where you are today. So it's worth taking the chance to get there. This is The Brian Hyde Show.